for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 is the power of God for salvation. And so if we are going to raise a righteous generation, the gospel better be front and center. And so as we think about that this morning, wrapping up this series, what does it look like to raise a righteous generation? It needs to be gospel-centered. And so there's four things I think we see in this text that remind us of that truth. Here from Psalm 78. First, fill the hearts and minds of our children with gospel content. We need to fill their hearts and minds with gospel content. Second, we need to cultivate a gospel culture. Third, as parents, we need to model commitment to a gospel community, to a church. And then fourth, and finally, and most importantly, we must cry out to God for their salvation. So fill their hearts and minds with gospel content, cultivate a gospel culture, model commitment to gospel community, and then cry out to God for their salvation. Before we jump in, though, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what uh, your word teaches us. Um, Lord, we thank you for this portion of your word. And we pray now that by your spirit you would seal its truth to our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so fill their hearts and minds with gospel content. Now, where do we see that in this passage in Psalm 78? And I want you to look with me at the end of verse 4 and the first part of verse 5. I'll, I'll just go ahead and read all of verse 4. We will not hide, from, uh, not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. So let's stop right there. There's three things that we see referred to in this passage. The mighty works of God, the gracious character of God, and the righteous ways or the law of God. So let's take a look. Verse 4, the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. So what they're saying here is, again, they're singing this psalm together as a gathered community. But what they're saying is here, here is that we will not fail to tell our kids about the great things that God has done in Israel's history. We will tell them how God delivered us out of Egypt. As the generations go on, we will tell them how He raised up for us um, people to guide us uh, throughout, the, throughout the land. We will tell them how God raised up David. We will tell them how God delivered us from exile. We'll tell them, going back even further, how God led us into the promised land. We will tell our children the mighty works of God. Now, we need to remember that for them, that wasn't just kind of a detached, you know, there's this God who's up there who does mighty things, but is in some way or somehow relationally detached from His people. He just does these things. Not at all. These mighty works were evidence of God's great grace and delight in His people. In Psalm 44, verse 3, we read this about how this idea of the light of God's face. 
being turned toward his people and being essential for their deliverance. Let me read this passage for you. Psalm 44 verse 3. Not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So even here, in talking about God's mighty work of deliverance and God's mighty work of, of leading the people into the land, what the psalmist were, was writing here, what the people of God sang together, was it wasn't our effort. It wasn't our strength. It was God's mighty arm, meaning His strength, and His hand, meaning His direct involvement, but not just that, His face, the light of His face, which was the expression of His delight for His people. That's part of what the psalmist says was instrumental in their deliverance into the land. Not just God's power, but His love. Not just God's strength, but his delight in his people reflected to them in the light of his face. They were delivered, you might say, by God's delight. And so, the, you know, this raises the question for us as we think about our own story. As you think about your story as a Christian and telling your story to your kids, in what way is your story not just a reflection of God's deliverance in your life, God's power in your life, God's calling you to salvation and maybe other ways in which he's demonstrated his power to you. How is it also a story about his delight? About the light of his face making all the difference in your life as you line that up with his mighty work in your life. So mighty works but also gracious character. So in verse 5, it says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. Now, often in Hebrew poetry, you have you know, a, a real parallelism between these two lines. And that's certainly here. But there's a little bit of a difference. The law is referred to when it talks about the testimony, but it's the law in a particular way. Specifically, the testimony had to do with the way in which the law testified to God's character. So there's the law in the sense of the rules, the things that we're called to do and not to do. And that's what you see in the second line of verse 5. But before you get to the second line of verse 5 and that reference to the law, you have the testimony, which again was the way in which God's Word testified to His character. So what do you see in God's Word concerning God's character? Well, there's a lot of things we could say. We can certainly say, first, it testifies to His holiness. He's a holy God. He is perfectly pure. He is other. And He calls us to be holy. But it also testifies to His grace. Remember, the prologue to the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Grace precedes law, even in the giving of the Ten Commandments. And then, of course, there's the grace that's inherent in the law in the provision of the sacrificial system. That was a grace. Here, here's my holy law. Here's how we fail. And here's the provision that I have made for atonement. And when you look at the, uh, Exodus chapter 25, you have the testimony being referred to as the law. 
I'm sorry, the law being referred to as the testimony and the instruction being given that as the Ark of the Covenant is constructed, the testimony is to be placed inside the Ark. And then on top of the Ark was to be placed the gold mercy seat covering the entire top of the Ark. And it was there that the blood of the sacrifice was to be placed. And then above the mercy seat was where God met with Moses and then later with the high priest. Do you see the picture of grace that is there? The way that that points to the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, the mercy seat, the, the Hebrew word literally means the atoning it's just a way of talking about what happened there. And of course at the cross, Jesus Christ paid the price in full. There's a fountain filled with blood we heard sung earlier. It's the blood of sacrifice, the blood of Christ that forever covers the sin of all who look to Him in faith. The mighty works which are a reflection of His delight in His people, a reflection of His grace, the gracious character of God, the testimony, His Word itself placed in only the, in, in, in the place where it can be covered by the blood ultimately. And then the law. Second half of verse 5, and He appointed a law in Israel. That is concerning His these are the things I'm calling you to do. And these are the things I'm saying you are not to do. Now as parents, where do we tend to go first? Do we tend to go to the mighty works as a reflection of God's glorious grace, of His, of His delight in His people? Or do we tend to go to the, the, the fact that this is the God who makes provision for forgiveness for our sin, not from our own blood, but ultimately from the blood of His own Son? Or do we go right to, these are the things that God says to do, and these are the things that God says not to do. So do these things and don't do these things. Now, of course, there is a place for that. <laughs> God gave His law for a reason, that we might obey it. And especially when our children are little, there's a whole lot of you got to do this and you can't do this. That's just a reflection of God's goodness that we want to teach them. But if we aren't also talking to our kids about the mighty works of God, which are a reflection of His power and His delight in His people, and if we aren't also talking about the gracious character of God by which He makes atonement for sin, even as we teach about the righteous ways of God and call our kids to walk in obedience to it, then we're failing to present the beauty and the fullness of the gospel. The Bible repeatedly calls for all three of those things to be happening. Not just the teaching of the law, but the speaking of the gracious character and the mighty works of God. You see it when Abraham is called in Genesis 17. He's told to do this with his kids, with the generations to come in Genesis 18. You see it with the Exodus generation. Moses is told by God to do this in Exodus 12 and Exodus 13. You see it when um, Moses is on the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy talking to the children of the Exodus generation after their parents had all died off in the wilderness. You see it when Joshua is in the land reiterating those same commands to the children that that are there to the I'm sorry the, the parents that are there 
Why is it so important that we do this? Why is it so important that we make sure that we're talking about the mighty works, the gracious character, and the righteous ways of God? Well, the psalmist tells us in verse 2. Look back at verse 2 with me. I will open my mouth in a parable, Asaph says. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now, the word for parable and the word for dark sayings, those two ideas together are not meant to be referring to something that is impossible to understand, right? Some, some mystery, some, uh, some, some way in thinking about uh, something that can't be discerned or confusing or, or mysterious. No. Again, these are things that have been told by the fathers to the, to the children. What Asaph is doing here is saying, I will tell you the way in which all that makes sense of the way in which things are now. I'll help you understand the pattern of Israel's history. If you go on and read the rest of Psalm 78, it's really long. You're going to see a pattern that's woven throughout Psalm 78. There's this pattern of God delivering His people, this pattern of God sinning, I'm sorry, of people sinning against God and forgetting Him, this pattern of God uh, calling His people to, to, for, to seek forgiveness and them crying out in the midst of the pain of their sin, and then this pattern that includes God restoring Restoring his people. Asaph's doing that in miniature in Psalm 78. The Bible does that in whole. It's not just a matter of understanding the things that have happened in history, it's understanding the reason why those things happen and what it means for life today. Why do our kids need to know these things? It's so that they can make sense of reality. Why are things the way they are? Well, we have a God who's sovereign over history. And this is how we understand why things are the way they are. And we understand what God is up to throughout the course of history. We understand where history's headed. If our kids don't know the, the mighty works, the gracious character, and the righteous ways of God, then they can be left with this sense of meaningless, right? What is the point of history? We teach these things to our kids to help them make sense of reality, to help them understand why things are the way they are. But then secondly, to help prevent spiritual calamity. You see this in verse 8. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Why do we teach these things? Why do we fill their hearts and minds with gospel content? It is so that spiritual calamity by God's grace may be prevented. Now, if you've ever been a parent for any length of time, you see too much of yourself in verse 8. I do. In a way, we could say not that we don't want this generation to be like previous generations, but that we don't want our kids in many ways to be like us in the ways in which we have fallen short as parents. Some of you may be here or you may be watching and you are a, a parent, your kids are grown and you're a, a brand new Christian. And you, you grieve because you've had children in your home for you know, 18, 19, 20 years and they did not have the benefit of being raised with parents who knew and loved Jesus. And now they're gone and now you're a Christian and you think, man, is it too late? 
Or maybe you are a parent. You've, you've either at the, you know, the tail end of having kids that are raised and, and grown. You're a Christian parent. Or you've got kids that are you know, getting into the middle school and high school years. And you look back and think, man, my heart was not steadfast. My spirit was not faithful. I was pursuing other things. My work mattered more to me. My other relationships mattered more to me. I loved these kids, but I did not invest in them spiritually. I didn't tell them the mighty works. I didn't speak of God's gracious character. What I did when I did it was just teach them God's law. And now they don't understand what it means to relate to a law, a God of grace. I want to encourage you by telling you that it's never too late to start living the gospel in front of your kids. They may still be in your home. They may be out of the home. You may have very limited contact with them. And it may be too late to teach them the righteous ways of God, but it is not too late as there's opportunity to speak of the gracious character of God towards you and to tell of His mighty works in your own life. It's never too late. It's never too late to begin to live the gospel in front of your kids. Fill their hearts with gospel content. Second, cultivate a gospel culture. Now look at verses 5 and 6 with me. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. So again, here there's this generation to generation progression of the communication of these gospel truths. And you saw it, I mentioned it already, you saw that pattern established with Abraham in Genesis 18. You see it again in Exodus 12 and 13, in Deuteronomy 6, in Joshua 4. Woven throughout the Psalms, that same kind of a instruction. But when you look in particular at certain passages, and I want to look at Deuteronomy 6 just quickly here, you see the way in which that instruction is both deliberate and responsive. Deliberate and responsive. So take a look. If you have your Bible, you can flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If not, you can just listen as I read along. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 7 gives you a picture of deliberate teaching. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them as you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So when you think about creating or cultivating a gospel culture in your home, part of that work is deliberate. It involves deliberately teaching your children the truths that I referenced in the first point. But part of it is also responsive. So later in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verses 25, I'm sorry, 20 through 25, we read this. When your son asks of you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the law and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And then it goes on. So as you, as you think about filling hearts and minds with gospel content, 
So I talked about in the first point. That happens chiefly in the home. It happens chiefly in the home. You create a gospel culture in the home in part as you teach things in a way that are both deliberate and responsive. Uh, what does that look like for us today? Uh, there's a book I want to commend to you. It's a book titled Family Discipleship, Leading Your Home Through Time, Moments, and Milestones by Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin. We'll get it on our Facebook page later. Um, Family Discipleship, again, is the title of the book. And Chandler and Griffin talk about this idea of cultivating a gospel culture in your home by utilizing what they, what they describe as time, moments, and milestones. Time, moments, and milestones. By time, they mean just simply the opportunities. I'm sorry, sorry they mean the, the uh, established rhythm of family discipleship in your home. It's just creating, it's, it's the deliberate side of things from the first part of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's deliberately establishing a rhythm in your home by which you're able to teach your kids about the mighty works and the gracious character and the righteous law of God. Now, the temptation is often to jump right in and basically try to replicate a Sunday morning worship service. And that can be crushing for you and your kids. You can set a bar so high that you never actually do it. So let me encourage you to start small. Read a portion of Scripture. Sing a song together. Pray. And begin to establish a deliberate rhythm by which you are telling your kids the story. And teaching them God's righteous ways. But then they go on in the book to talk about moments. Moments are those opportunities that, come aco- uh, you know, that happen in the course of everyday life. Right? You're, you're correcting your children. There's an opportunity. There's a moment to reinforce things that are true about God and His grace. There are times in which God unexpectedly blesses and provides. It's just, you know, throughout the course of your life and uh, the course of everyday moments, to be able to say, God's, God's the reason why we're enjoying this right now. God's good. See what He's done for us. I think especially when we think about the worship service, to be able to tell our kids what we're doing in worship. We get a weekly opportunity to reinforce the gospel truths that are embedded in the structure of our worship service. You know, little Joey, why do we start with a call to worship? Well, we start with a call to worship because God calls us to worship. We would never worship Him if God didn't first call it to us. That's how good He is. Time, moments, milestones. Milestones can be something like the birth of a sibling, right? So Joey has little sister Jane is born. And you can talk to Joey about just God's great provision. You know, Jane was knit together in your mommy's womb by God. That's what Psalm 139 tells us. Let's read that together, right? Birth of a sibling, graduations, etc. Weddings, funerals. Death of a grandparent. All these are ways in which we have milestones. Time, moments, milestones. In the midst of all of that, you as parents have an opportunity to get personal. To not just have it be about this God and your children, but to get personal talking about your own growth in grace and love. Psalm 145 verse 4 says this, One generation shall praise your works to another. 
We've been talking about teaching one generation to the next, but in Psalm 145, it talks a lot more about the heart of the parent, his or her love for God, resulting in praise to God that's commended to the next generation. One generation shall praise your works to another. The commands of God on the heart lead to love for God from the heart. The commands of God on the heart lead to love from God from the heart. And that's the kind of love that God is looking for. And the only way the commands get on God's heart, other than God opening up their eyes to believe, is as we as parents live out love for God from the heart. Third, model commitment to gospel community. And these last two points are going to go quick. Model commitment to gospel community. So again, just looking back at Psalm 78 as a whole, it was sung in church. Right? It's, as God's people were gathered together, here were you know, grandparents and parents and, and children, three, four generations maybe together, singing these words and other psalms that reflect these same truths about the importance of this generational trans, you know, transfer of the gracious character, the mighty works, and the righteous laws of God. Model commitment to church. Model that before your own children from a very young age. You know, may it be that they just realize that going to church is just a normal part of life. This is what you do. Spend time with other um, members of this body outside of church. I know that's hard because of COVID, but we've got wonderful technology that we have access to. So you may not feel like it's time for you to be coming back to church on Sunday morning, but you can be gathered with your kids around the live stream right now. You can connect with other people in the church through a growth group. You can connect with other people in the church through other ways. Just find ways to be together modeling to your kids what it means to be in a gospel community, to be in a church. Now one of the ways that we have historically tried to engage kids in the life of the church is through Sunday school and children's worship. And COVID has thrown a curveball at a lot of things, including that. Now, as the elders, you know, kind of talk through this, we realize this does present, prevent something of an opportunity to think about the method by which we have been seeking to teach these kids to know and love Jesus. And, and that is really to invest in the parents because we've always known that the home is the primary place for that to happen anyway. So we've stepped back and asked, what can we do? Since we're not doing children's worship, we're not doing children's Sunday school right now, what can we do now in order to encourage and equip parents to do that which is to be happening in the home anyway? I've been calling over the last couple months all the parents. Any parent that has a child in the home of any age, I've been calling just to see how they're doing. And there are some themes that are emerging. I'm, I'm almost through with those calls. So if you haven't gotten one yet, it's coming. There are some themes that are emerging. What I'm hearing frequently is parents who say, I feel like I'm dropping the ball. I just feel like I'm such a failure when it comes to this. I also feel like I'm all alone. Like maybe every other parent is getting this right and I'm the only one who's blowing it. I also feel like I'm trying to give my kids something that I never had myself. 
Our desire is to come alongside parents who feel that way. So how are we going to do that? Well, a few things we are working on right now is um, some of it's just very simple. A lot of parents said, what can I use? Right? I think opening up my Bible and reading to my little kids is probably a little bit too high of a hurdle. What could I use? Do you have any resources you'd recommend? And I've collected a, a series of resources that we're going to set up as a book table and we'll have available online somehow so that you know, parents can have resources that they can access to use with their kids. Uh, Plug-and-play type stuff that's gospel-centered. Um, our Advent series that's going to be starting up in uh, last Sunday in November. We're going to have that Advent series connect with a family devotional so that families can kind of go along with the Advent preaching that's going to happen. And those two can dovetail together to kind of reinforce with our kids the things that are being taught on Sunday morning in the worship service. Uh, Eric and I have talked about uh, an opportunity to, in January, do some teaching around how to deal with technology, right? How can we help parents deal with the reality of tech in the home. Um, the other thing I want to do is identify some of these parents that I've talked to and just say, how can we come together to provide something else that parents are saying they long for, and that's connection with other parents. So that they can be encouraging and supporting one another. Groaning and growing together when it comes to this difficult task of raising kids who know and love Jesus. All right, let's move on. Fill their hearts and minds with gospel content. Cultivate a gospel culture. Model commitment to gospel community. And then finally, cry out to God for their salvation. Cry out to God for their salvation. What are we looking for? Well, we see it in verse 7. It's, it's beautiful. We get a little picture of what salvation looks like here in Psalm 78, verse 7. That they should set their hope in God... And not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. What does it look like when a person puts their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation? It looks like setting your hope in God, not forgetting the works of God, and keeping His commandments. Not perfectly, of course. Progressively, with the help of the Holy Spirit doing work in us that will one day be completed on the last day. But set their hope in God. I love here in the Hebrew, the word for hopes, it, it means simple trust. It just means simple trust. That they would put their simple trust in God. That they wouldn't forget how good and powerful and gracious He is. And that they would realize that His law is actually the path that brings the, the best and happiest life. Only God can do that. Only God can raise up a righteous generation. Only God can make a person even desire to be righteous. Because as we saw back in week one, no one's righteous. No one seeks for God. And so we pray. We remember that we didn't make ourselves righteous. It's only by God's grace and we know that even if we could, as parents, get it all right, which we never would, only God can open blind eyes. 
Only God can give that great gift of faith. So parent, if you know that you've fallen woefully short, parent who's now a Christian, but wasn't a Christian when the children were in the home, rest in the power of God to raise people from the dead, spiritually speaking. Trust in the power of God to give your child eyes that see and a heart that believes. Mindy Caliguar is the founder of Soul Care and the director of personal growth at Glue. She talks about the fact that joy is an inherently relational idea. The part of your brain that recognizes joy is the part that is firing when you see someone who knows you well and their face lights up. Isn't that amazing? The joy part of your brain starts blinking when you look in the face of someone who knows you and they just begin to delight because you're there. Don't forget the joy that is found as we look into the face of Jesus Christ in whom the glory of God is revealed. David knew this was true. Psalm 4, 6, and 7. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What will characterize a righteous generation? Oh, it will char- be characterized by obedience to God's law. And, but boy, will it be characterized by delight in God's face. And as parents, we have an opportunity as we are looking into the radiant face of the Lord as we remember the gospel of Jesus Christ to reflect some of that to our kids as our delight in them is a derivative of our delight in God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we do pray for our kids. We pray that you would raise up a righteous generation. And Lord, as for ourselves, so for them. We pray that that righteousness would not be a righteousness that we could ever hope to achieve, but a righteousness that is found in you. That our joy would not be in anything that we do, but that our joy would be in what you have done for us. And that our simple trust, no matter how crazy things get in this world, is in your great and glorious might. That our hope for all of our days might be in you, in you alone. We pray that for ourselves. Lord, let us be a people that live that way. And by grace, would you let our children be a generation that lives that way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.